Welcome to the Final Score Network and the Final Score Podcast, presented by Team Anders Realtors. I'm Andy. He's former D3 student athlete, two-year starter, consummate glue guy, and co-host... Ryan! Cam! Two-man monster flush! Off the inbound! Ryan Cam Slam Jam! Find us on Podbean, the Apple Podcast Store, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at TheFinalScore35. There is always plenty to run through, but before we get to it, a word from our presenting sponsor. Service from the heart to become your Realtors for Real Life is Team Anders Realtors' mission. Team Anders helps its clients find the home that best fits their needs and makes the process simple and fun along the way. Team Anders will be in close communication with you personally taking care of your real estate needs through technology, marketing, and advertising. They have served thousands of clients over 30 plus years in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, and are here to serve you today. Learn more at teamanders.com. All right, sports fans, welcome to this week's The Final Score Podcast. Uh, We are coming at you live from the basement. I say we because I've got my co-host Ryan sitting in the seat to my right back in the saddle after a two-week stint in Portland, Maine helping run event operations for the Live and Work in Maine Open, a corn ferry tour event. His first experience adulting, no mom, no dad, no roommates, no nothing except for some business partners and 12 to 14 hour days. So good to have you back, Ryan. Let's dive right into it. Ryan, the lectern is yours. Yeah, it's good to be back. Sorry I missed last week. You all probably didn't miss me too much, but uh, here we go uh, for my podium. Um, I'm just going to talk about the injuries that have been going on in the playoffs this year in the NBA. Um, there have been an abnormally uh, good amount of injuries this year, but I don't think that it's anything to do with a condensed season like guys like LeBron and his cronies are saying, oh, it's because the season – is it's freaking so June. It's condensed. It's yeah, July tomorrow. He says the games are too close together. Blah, blah. It's like, come on, guys. Then play less, take less. These money. guys, I mean, they are built for this. People just get hurt. There's wear and tear in people's bodies all the time, and it all seems to be happening at the same time, which could be a sign that maybe they're not taking great care of themselves. Um, but like I said, it's at the wrong time, and this could happen at any time. It could be walking down the street. It could be practicing in the summer. I mean, who knows? I think these guys, some of them are being soft. I mean, Obviously, like Giannis last night, he they thought he might have torn his ACL, but he's fine. They just said he's fine. But guys like Kyrie, I think he, if he was really a man, he'd play through his injury. Or James Harden, like I, I get it that it's net, it's a nagging injury, but like if you can't hurt yourself more, play, dude. That's just not cool that you're sitting out and making other people wonder. Oh, oh, there's so many injuries. Oh, the NBA is doing this wrong. It's BS. LeBron, shut up. And your cronies can shut up. I don't, I don't like it. I just think that it's all a perfect storm of injuries happening right now, and I don't think it has anything to do with the NBA um, and their condensed season is what they're calling it. Well, and if it is, then shorten your season, take less money, and don't finish in July. It's ridiculous. Uh, And my podium also centers more around the NBA, but kind of a little bit basketball in general, but driven out of the NBA. And it centers on the sissification of basketball, specifically the NBA. It isn't often I'm a fan of something NBA, to be completely honest. I think that's probably come through loud and clear in 25, 26 podcasts. 
But the recent take by former coach turned lead color commentator for the NBA, Jeff Van Gundy, struck a positive chord with me. Yes, please, more takes like this. He was referring to the overall, or the, sorry, the oversell of an inadvertent slap to the face in the Clippers-Suns game five. Then the stoppage and a review for a flagrant foul. Freaking please, stop already. Basketball is a physical, rough game. This garbage hook and hold stuff in the NCAA, the hand checking away from the basket in both leagues, every hard foul needs to be reviewed. BS is complete and utter nonsense, a waste, and is ruining the best game in the world, basketball. Like I said last week, and I have before, watch a game from the 1980s, youngsters. That was basketball. Pistons, bad boys, and Celtics physically going toe-to-toe, for example. Yeah, there were some cheap shots back then. And I say cheap shots have no place. Uh, you know, certainly some of that was prevalent in the 80s, especially between the, the Pistons and the Celtics. But today, every slap or bump or hard foul leads to a flop, a fake injury, a stoppage, and a flagrant foul. Draymond Green would have thrived in the 80s. None of all these technicals where he gets suspended for a game because of hard fouls. LeBron, Paul George, just to name a few, Ryan named a couple up in his injury section, would have shriveled up like a man in a cold pool in the 80s. Kudos to Van Gundy for calling the NBA on its problem, and it is a problem. The game is soft and doesn't resemble the game I grew to love as a kid until they fixed the sissification I'll stay on the sidelines when it comes to watching the NBA. All right. I stole pretty much everybody to complain about, tee up, whatever, between my podium and tee up last week. Ryan and I were kind of scouring the on the line, the interwebs, to try to figure out uh, who to tee up this week. Um, I think Jalen Rose would have been a great candidate, but I covered that last week. So, instead, big topic, NCAA forced through some things, trying to kind of thump their chest that, hey, we got this NIL thing ahead of all the other states. It starts tomorrow. We're going to do a little Ask the Athlete here. Ryan, obviously, you're graduated, you're done. Let's just say this was going into your senior year. Would you take advantage of the NIL rules, even as a D3 athlete? What do you think that means you know, for other athletes that are more normal, like the 99.9%, such as yourself, compared to the superstars? Yeah, I think that it's it's definitely something that you could, I mean, look into. Um, I, I'd probably look into it, but... I just don't know how much uh, guys at Division Two and Division Three level um, would make much money, uh, maybe from a local store or something. But I mean, you're not going to get the brand endorsements from big time stuff, or you could be the spokesmodel for the Mexican Long John Silver. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, just it's it's. I I think I would give it a try. I mean, why not? There's no hurt in it, but I I just don't see it being be- that beneficial for non-Division One. And specifically, higher Division One athletes. Yeah, I mean, unless you're really a star, those are the guys that are going to make the money. That'll be really interesting to see, kind of what comes down from there. But we'll we'll get more into that topic, I'm sure, as things kind of unfold and we have drama because there will be drama. Huge article on the Athletic this week about what it means and really all the competitors in the space, which is super interesting. You know, all the different. They're really kind of like engines or websites or whatever to kind of help you drive to um, monetize your likeness. I saw that Wisconsin's quarterback um, just came out with his own trademarked logo. So, I mean, guys are going to go in, guns a-blazing, and more power to them if they can earn from it. I don't don't know. I mean, 
we've debated it before. I don't know that it's that good for amateur sports, but hey, it is what it is. So if you're going to do it under the table, you may as well do it over the table and make it legal for all to see. All right. On that, a little shout out to Ryan for taking charge on Around the World and driving this week's topics. All good stuff. Uh, Ryan, why don't you uh, lead these segments too, and then I'll play your co-host this time. Yeah, so uh, we're going to do what we usually do. I'll go first on one through five, um, then you do two and four. But for the first topic, um, if you were to create the perfect golfer, and that'd be, I was thinking, like, guy for driving the ball, uh, ball striking, uh, putting, mentality, and then recovery slash creativity, um, who would you kind of mix together to make that perfect golfer? And like I said, I'll go first. Um, and the guy driving the ball that I would want to drive the ball like is Dustin Johnson. I mean, you could pick Bryson who just over tries to overpower a golf course, but he's not overly, you know, accurate at all times. And Dustin can hit the ball a, a country mile, but he but he's pretty accurate in doing so, and he hits a lot of fairways. And I would. Love to be able to do that. And then ball striking, which is iron play, um, hands down, I'd, I'd, it'd be Colin Morikawa. I mean, this guy, unbelievable. Um, he already is the best ball striker on tour at a, at 24 or whatever he is. He's very young. Um, he's just he's so good, and he makes it look so easy. And I'd, I'd want that uh, to be me just once. But then for putting, you know, there's a lot of guys that are good putters on the tour, but I kind of went back and forth on this one between Patrick Reed and Xander Shoffland. I stuck with Xander because I'm a, a lot more of a Xander guy than a Patrick Reed guy. Um, but Xander, he's, he always he's really good with the strokes gained putting um, every year on tour, and that that keeps him in a lot of big events. Um, and mentality, at, it's got to be Tiger, uh, a guy that for years just he's just got that sixth sense to him, that killer instinct. Just blocks everything out and goes. I, I wish I could have that as well. And then recovery slash creativity, it's, it's got to be filled with thrill. I mean, the guy, you've seen him hit off, hit it backwards before. You've seen him hit off grandstands. You've seen him with the creativity with his wedges out of the bunker, all this good stuff, and just making these crazy shots to put himself back into into play and to recover and make, and make good scores and par. Um, so if I could make a golfer be Dustin driving the ball, Colin hitting irons for me, uh, Xander putting, Tiger's mentality, and then the recovery and creativity of Phil, uh, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, this is a great deep thinker to start us off with. Um, I guess to get my perfect golfer, you can tell father like father like son. We did not compare notes on kind of how we broke it down. I'm not necessarily similar people, but similar mindset. You know, I'm looking for a combination of personality mental toughness, ability to be long, but more important, accurate off the tee, iron play, short game wizardry, putting, and longevity, meaning someone who can compete for a long time. Um, So let's start with personality, someone who can engage with the fans, take it all in stride, be a little self-deprecating. Who else here but Phil? Come in. I mean, while some think he's fake, which is ridiculous, I see him as exactly what a golfer should be. Runner-up in this category for me would be Ricky Fowler. Super likable. Always takes times to you know time to engage with the kids and the fans. I think personality makes a difference. It's a big reason why I'm not in the camp of of being a huge huge Tiger fan. Appreciate what he does, but personality of a doorknob. 
All right, mental toughness is a little muddier. Uh, there's lots of ways to go here. Obviously, golf is such a mental toughness type of game. But to me, the most mentally tough of them all would be Jack. So unflappable, 18 majors and a boatload of runner-ups to prove it. Jack Nicklaus is my mental toughness uh, part of the makeup. Um, the old adage is always drive for show, putt for dough. Um, so when I'm building my perfect golfer, I'm not looking for pure power, not the Bryson and the Brooks and, and Dustin who can hit it a mile but are going to hit it into the rough and have to gouge out. Um, I want accuracy. So I went back and looked a little bit to the last five years, that back to 2016. And the top 10, it's pretty crazy, stays almost the same year over year. I mean, guys move up and down and whatever, but there's a lot of same names in there. But one... Um, you know, but one name that stands out to me in particular for driving the golf ball accurately over a long period of time, and that's Jim Furyk. Whack out, swing or not, dude just stripes it down the middle. Um, here's a here's a an, an interesting one, and one where Ryan and I are the same. An amazing stat in golf is something like 125 yards out in the fairway, tour pros only average really like 20 feet from the cup for their approach shots. Think about that. These are the greatest ball strikers in the world, and we're trying to flag hunt, and they're not even averaging better than 20 feet. That's that's nuts. Um, one guy that does it consistently well, Ryan picked him too. My perfect iron player is a youngster and somebody who should be able to do it for a while, and that's Colin Morikawa, pure up and down uh, from long irons to short irons. Short game wizardry, Ryan talked about this one a little bit. Take who you want. For me, it's Phil every day. He's creative. He's crafty. He's imaginative. I mean, he can make shots that should be downright impossible and U.S. Open type rough look simple. Um, not that he doesn't make mistakes every now and then, but, you know, as a fan, I never worry about Phil hitting in the sand or hitting in a kind of a crazy spot next to the green because he's going to find a way to get out. Um, putting is a whole other story. Um, it's often when you look over the course of guys' careers, what befalls careers for pro golfers. They get the yips. They change their grip so many times. I mean, it is really is drive for show, putt for doubt. Because if you look at the top 10 list of driving accuracy, those guys aren't like multiple, multiple winners. They've, yeah, they've got some wins on the list, but it's guys that can putt. And for this one, I didn't go back and look in stats because I can tell you the best putter that I've seen in my life when he, when he was in his prime, because he was clutch, he was accurate, he was fearless, and he drained so many critical putts was Tiger being maybe not a big Tiger fan, you cannot argue with his skill on the greens with the putter, the flat stick in his hands. Um, finally, to piece my guy together, I've got to have a guy who can compete for a long time. And i got to say, is there anyone in golf who defines this more than Bernard Longer? I think he's like 64 now. He's, um, he's very good. He was a, he had a very good PGA Tour career, always kind of up there in the, in the majors, especially at Augusta. Um, probably the arguably the best champions tour player ever, and he still shows up at his age at Augusta and gives it a go. You know, courses that don't require you know you to try to keep up with the Brysons and stuff and our skill things. So you know, if I'm going to go for longevity and being able to compete, I'm going with Bernard Longer. So my perfect golfer is Phil Jack Jim, called Phil Tigburn. I love it. It's a great. Yeah. So for number two, you're going to go first on this one. Um, we're going to do an all-time Detroit Tigers lineup from your lifetime. So I'll do from 99 to 2021. You can do from, I won't say when you were born, 30 years ago. I, yeah, right. I could have picked. I didn't even think about that. There were some guys in the 70s that actually probably would have been out there. I mean, I 
we kind of got in this sort of a couple weeks ago. We talked about Tigers, you know, best era of baseball. When did we stop being a baseball fan and stuff? We got a little bit into the Tigers. I mean, I could just say simply give me the 84 lineup as is. I could still recite it to you top to bottom. Um, I can hear that on the radio. Well, Ernie Harwell calling it um, all the time. The pitching staff back then, their rotation was only really four guys. I mean, guys were workhorses back then, not these wusses that only pitch on six or seven days rest. Um, but I'm going to mix and match it a little bit because Ryan said I could. So I got to have leading off, playing second base, Sweet Lou Whitaker. And by the way, he should be in Cooperstown. Enough waiting already. Part of the best double play tandem in Major League Baseball history, which gets me to batting second, my shortstop in 1984 World Series MVP, Alan Trammell. Batting third, I'm going to stick with that 84 Tigers team, right fielder and one of the most epic Spartans of all time, Kirk Gibson. Um, you know, it's, he helped the Dodgers in a classic way, you know, obviously when prior to recently win their last World Series. Um, you know, and so who knows if he could have stayed with the Tigers, but um, phenomenal, you know, good fielder, gun for an arm, freak on the base path, freak power, loved watching Gibby. Batting fourth, this is where I'll start to digress from that 84 lineup. I think back then it was Lance Parrish, who was probably my favorite player in 84. But I'm going to go with Miggy here, DH Miggy, not first base Miggy. I mean, how can you argue with his career stats and what he's done? Uh, batting fifth and playing first base, not Prince, but I'm going to go with Cecil Fielder, the original Big Daddy. He parked a couple over the roof at the old Tiger Stadium, uh, which you know a, a handful of people have done over time, but... Uh, big boy could definitely uh, put some wood on the ball and hit it out of the park. Good, good post cleanup hitter there. Batting sixth probably could easily be a leadoff hitter. One of my all-time favorite Tigers, honestly, playing center field. Curtis Granderson hated it when they traded him. Although, did they get Miggy out of that deal? I can't. No, that, he, they traded him to the Yankees for basically nothing. That's right. It was the Yankees. They were cash cutting or whatever. But man. Great center fielder. Sorry, Chet Lemon. You're my second favorite favorite center fielder. But batting seventh and playing third base. I had to do a little bit of research here because not a whole lot of third basemen completely stand out in my lifetime. I mean, there's some classic names that do to me, but not necessarily great players. But I had settled on Travis Fryman, uh, four-time All-Star from the early 90s. Played with the Tigers from like 90 to 97. So kind of coming off there. 80s heyday when they were okay, middle of the pack, not horrible like they were in the early 2000s. Um, he was a good glove and good player there. Batting eighth and playing left field. This was another hard one. I could have probably easily just gone with Larry Herndon or actually Steve Kemp who played in the 70s, but I don't remember him so much minus baseball cards. But I went with Bobby Higginson. And speaking of the crappy teams from the early 2000s, he played for some of them. But when you look him up, he rated he rate, rated highly in some of the crazy baseball stats categories like WAR. Don't even ask me what what WAR stands for. And that's not the simple stuff that we used to track when I was a kid and played Stratomatic. But um, batting last and playing catcher, you got to go with Pudge here all day. I mean, he didn't grow up in the Tigers system, but he was he was a centerpiece for their really good teams and their resurgence. Just a phenomenal defensive guy, pretty clutch hitting at times. Um, you know, a couple of other catchers, you know, kind of come to mind. Maybe a utility guy, I didn't put him in here, but it could be Brandon Inge. He played, but he was like, he pitched a little bit and just 
you know, win blowout games, but he played center field, he played third base, he played a little bit of shortstop, he played catcher. Um, so he'd be maybe my my pinch hitter, I guess, if you say. Uh, my starting pitcher, oh, man, you could easily go with Verlander or Scherzer or Kenny Rogers, but I'm going to go with 84, Jack Morris. Dude was a workhorse. I mean, Verlander was a workhorse. Scherzer was a workhorse. Maybe not quite in the vein of Morris, though. I mean, like I said, they really had a four-man rotation back then. So he's pitching on shorter rest, and he would go deep into games. Um, and then for that, you just skip the setup, man, and go right to, to a closer. I know you didn't ask for a closer, Ryan, but I said give me Willie, not Guillermo, who he changed his name to after he, he got the yips. But Willie Hernandez, my Cy Young MVP stud closer, um, king of that 84 season for the Tigers. And uh, bonus take, give me Sparky as my manager too, baby. Yeah, that's all really good stuff. Um, you know, I – like we, we talked about in the past, I'm not huge into baseball, but when I was younger, definitely paid a little more attention to the Tigers. Um, and throughout my life, I mean, there's most of these were easy picks for me at each position. Um, but batting first, I would start with the same guy you had at center field, and that's Curtis Granderson. Uh, always loved Grandy. He was so good. Um, great feel. I mean, I've seen, I saw him scale walls a couple times. He robbed a home run against the Indians once in the, with two outs in the bottom of the ninth, and he scaled it at at Progressive Field and stole a home that. run um, from I think it was Grady Sizemore actually just robbed him. I remember that was really, really cool to see. But he was a good good leadoff hitter, great leadoff guy. Um, became a great hitter um, later in his career, and then I, I think he's still playing. I think he's on the Mets now, maybe even maybe in the White Sox, one of those two, but. Still playing, loved him, number 28, uh, stud. It's batting second for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't really think of an order, um, but I'll go with my DH, Victor Martinez, a guy that played a little catcher, a little first base, switch hitter, um, was really clutch for the Tigers. I think maybe 2011 he came to Detroit uh, after being in Cleveland for a long time, and he was really good on some of the Tigers' deep playoff runs there. Uh, in the early 2010s, and he was and just he could always count on him for a clutch hit or just to get on base in general by a walk or just a single. Uh, batting third, my favorite Tiger of all time, uh, Miggy, a uh, guy that has just been outstanding. I mean, he's still playing. He's not great anymore, but getting up there in age. But, I mean, he won the Triple Crown. That never happens. Uh, yeah, that's phenomenal. Guy, just unbelievable hitter, and he was so clutch. He hit so, – I think his year when he, won, when he won the Triple Crown, he was hitting – I remember every time I'd turn on a late Tiger game, he'd – a game late in the in the ninth inning, he'd always hit a walk-off home run or something. He was just an absolute animal. Um, but, yeah, I mean, second to none when it comes to hitting the baseball. Um, obviously not a fast guy by any stretch of the imagination, but – uh, yeah, and then batting cleanup, a guy that wasn't in Detroit for too long, but he was a great hitter when he was in Detroit, and that's J.D. Martinez, uh, played in left field. Uh, wasn't wasn't in Detroit for too long, like I said, but he was a big home run guy, um, got on base a lot for Detroit uh, when he was there, and that's why I put him there. Batting fifth, my right fielder, the guy that I have the most fond memory of Detroit Tigers, Maglio. Uh uh, Ordonez playing right field, number 30, hit the walk-off against uh, the A's to go to the, the World Series in 2006. Um, a guy that could, another guy you could always count on for a big hit. 
clutch guy, hit a lot of home runs. Not athletic by any stretch of the imagination when it came to fielding, but just a great hitter. Uh, batting sixth, uh, a guy that I actually watched play minor league ball as well as watched him playing for the Tigers just in, on TV and stuff. That's Nick Castellanos at third base. Uh, the, I, I can only remember him and Brandon Inge playing third base, and I absolutely despised Brandon Inge because he, he always sucked to me for some reason. He just never... He never got hits when he needed to uh, when I was watching, so I, I never liked him, even though he's a bit of a spark plug and utility guy. But Cassianos is doing good things elsewhere now. Um, yeah, another really good hitter. Um, well, I don't even know where I was at in the lineups. Uh, that was six. So seven. Um, I, I know he's probably one of your – could have been your choice up there for second baseman, but – one of the best fielders ever. I think he went like two years without an error, and that's Placido Polanco, number 14. Uh, yeah, I think he was batting second for a long time for Detroit. Um, another guy that could just get on base. Like I said, unbelievable fielder. He Nothing went by him, and he's just an absolute stud, and he was a, he was a good leader for Detroit. Um, and then batting eighth, um, Carlos Guillen playing shortstop. Uh, another position where I didn't really have that many guys in mind. Uh, maybe Jose Iglesias, but he wasn't a great hitter. Guillen was also could play a bunch of different positions, played a little first base, played some outfield um, and shortstop as well. But, um, yeah, another switch hitter, number nine. Um, and then batting last, the same guy you had batting last, and that's Pudge, um, an absolute just beast of a catcher, didn't let anything by him. Um, he's just an absolute animal, like I said, and he, he was he had some timely hits in his career and anchored down Detroit to get us to the World Series in 2006. And my ace, uh, I, it's got to be JV, Justin Verlander. Um, just uh, heat left and right. I mean, one, I think he won the Cy Young and, and the um, American League MVP um, back in 2011, I believe, or 2012, one of the two. Um, just, just stud pitcher, and there's talks. He he said he wants to maybe even finish his de- his career in Detroit, so maybe he'll come back for a swan song here. And then I didn't have the closer thing, but I there's not really any good closers from my life. I think Papa Valverde had one good season, but otherwise he was terrible. And then T-ball Todd Jones is the other guy. <laughs> my dad's the stash. Um, this he was terrible. So Fernando Rodney with his crooked yeah, bat. No. Used to piss off Joaquin, your grandpa. Joaquin Benoit, uh, just not great closers for Detroit during my lifetime. But manager, it's got to be uh, Smokes. Um, a lot better than Brad Osmus ever was. Rod Rod Gardenhire, and then now it's uh, AJ Hinch, who could end up being good. But Tigers got a few years yet. Um, but yeah, that's that's a good segment there. Um, for a third spot, we're gonna go to. Back to the old Mount Rushmore well. And this time we're going to do the best college football environments. Um, we're going to go back and forth on this one. So I'll do one, then you do your two, and then I'll do two, and then you do one, and then we'll do that stuff. Um, but I can start um, with an environment I've been to, um, a place that's absolutely deafening. Even though it only seats 54,000 people, and that's Outson Stadium in Eugene, Oregon, home of the Ducks. Went to a game there in 2014, and it was about 95 degrees. The place was full. I mean, the oh, my 
my ears are still hurt from that. It was a little metal overhang, yeah, just crazy on one side that just holds the sound in it. Unbelievable, it so, so loud in the mountains there. It's just wow. It's it's so loud. It was they're just yelling, "Go ducks, go ducks!" And the damn mascot rides out on a motorcycle. Uh-huh. Um, but that yeah, that place is absolutely nuts. It was a zoo. <laughs> yeah, I had Otson in uh, in a runner-up spot for me just because it was. That was awesome. You know, for me, for this particular topic, I've got a little bit more in-person perspective than Ryan, obviously being older, but, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see where we each land. Launching certainly the Amway Coaches Poll and the AFCA Amway Championship Coaches Trophy back in the day meant I got to be on the sideline in some great places. So it's not just experiencing it through your TV and great sound. So if I get to go with two, these are not necessarily in any particular order, um, but I got to go Death Valley, LSU. Um, sadly, it was a 3.30 game. I would love to have been there for a night game. It was against Auburn. Um, it was when, whoa, Forn, Leonard uh, Fournette just went, he had like, I don't even know, 250 yards rushing, just trucked Auburn Tigers all over the field. Um, you know, when they sing Colin Baton Rouge, um, you know, every stadium kind of has their thing. I mean, the whole place sings. I can't even imagine what it would be like at a night game, but that was a sweet environment, minus the fact that for a 3.30 game in September, early October, is probably like 95 degrees on the field. But uh, my second spot for Mount Rushmore, since I get to go twice, I got to go with the shoe. Um, I've been there for a national championship celebration, which is a little different than a football game. So the first year that we did the trophy, back when I managed that sponsorship, um, but actually young Ryan went with me to watch Michigan State a la John L. Smith and the players are playing their tails off and the coaches are screwing it up when they botched the field goal attempt uh, fire Chinese fire drill at the end of the first half and instead of being up 17 or potentially 20 to 7 it was 17-14 killed the momentum but the shoe it's historic you know you got the whether you like marching bands or not the Ohio State marching band is pretty dang impressive um, you know, that's, that's everything it's worth for a big 10 game. I would definitely put the shoe up there. Yeah. Those are two great ones. I had Ohio state on there as well. Um, but I got to take it off. So my number two, um, I'm going to go, I mean, I've never really been to any of these places aside from Alton and Ohio stadium, but, um, I'll, I'll go with dope Campbell stadium home of the Seminoles. Uh, you I mean you go watch a night game there back when they had Jameis, uh, 2013, 2014, then 2015, 16. They're both pretty. They're pretty good those years too. But um, I mean, that place is just electric. They got the chief Osceola comes out on the horse and plants the the spear that's on fire. I mean, they're all doing. They're doing their oh the thing with their hands. You know, it's just it's insane. An insane oh, environment. Um, yeah, I'd love to go to a game there. Um, Michigan State played there a long time ago, didn't they? Maybe in the 90s or 80s. Oh, man, not that I remember. Oh, we played Florida State in 1987, got waxed the year that they won the Big Ten. Yeah, but that, I think that'd but, be a sweet place to watch a game. Um, definitely definitely on the bucket list. Uh, then I'll go with my number three, um, and that's going to be Death Valley uh, in Clemson, South Carolina. Um, when they run down that hill there, Tap Howard's Rock, uh, another place that's just absolutely electric for night games. I've always admired their orange and purple there on for their night games, and they have the big ESPN college game day stuff going on. Um, Dabo obviously is 
done wonders with that program and uh, it's, it's, there's no signs of slowing down either and just gets the fans raucous, um, turns the environment in just a, a great place to watch a game. Um, go to you for your last two and then shift back to me real quick. All right, my last two, um, I got to go with Notre Dame. Not a huge Notre Dame fan, but just the history, touchdown Jesus, although he's a little obscured now because of the you know more recent renovations in South Bend. I, I went there with your mom when it was not much of an upper deck. All the seats were still wood bleachers. You've been there with me too. Yep. Um, I've seen some epic Michigan State wins there when they were on a streak in the late 90s to the early 2000s. Um, Gary Scott bursting down the sideline comes to mind. Um, just a great place to watch a game though. I mean, they love their, their domers down there. And the other one for me, um, I've been to two Michigan State games there in person, so not in a work perspective, but it's Penn State, Beaver Stadium, crazy stadium. I mean, you can tell it's been added on to over the years. Um, it's very mismatched when you like look at, look at it, even from the outside or when it's empty. Um, but talk about reverberating off the mountains. And, like, I would love to have go to a whiteout game there um, just because yeah. how that comes through on the TV. But even the two Michigan State games I went to, one was in 94 when – 93 or 94, uh, when Penn State really, I think it was 93 actually, when Penn State really should have won a share of the national title. I mean, they were amazing. Kerry Collins, Kajana Carter, um, they blew the doors off of Michigan State. And the next time I went, it was a game where Penn State won on a late field goal. Uh, I mean, that is right up there with Autzen for as loud as it gets. And then I'll throw one more runner up in there because I'm sure it's not on Ryan's list, but surprising one to add for people to think about is South Carolina. They play sandstorm before the game and everybody's got a towel and that place absolutely rocks, which is crazy, but I guess it's SEC. And even if it's bottom tier SEC, um, just goes to show you how much they love their football in the South. Yeah, absolutely. And if you haven't ever seen a Penn State whiteout or can't recall, Google or YouTube uh, Penn State versus Michigan whiteout First play of the game, Michigan tried to go out for their for the play, and they're playing Mo Bamba. The place is yelling, the, all wearing their white. Michigan got a delay of game. They had no, they didn't even have any recollection of time or anything. They just, it was so loud, like just deafening. You know, and you're not old enough to remember these days, but guys my age would remember back in the early '90s. Brian Greasy was mid early mid '90s was notorious for this. The quarterbacks would pull out of center and tell the ref, I can't hear. And the refs would quiet the crowd, which is the most asinine thing ever because it's a freaking home field advantage. They got rid of that ability to do that pretty quickly. But, I mean, think about how stupid that is. Is You're like, oh, I can't hear, so I can't get the playoff. I mean, come on. That's part of the game. Of course, it would be leave it to a whiny Michigan player um, to kind of lead that charge, but didn't last for very long. But, yeah, that would (laughs) have... That would have definitely been one of those penalized moments back in the back in the day, which oh, is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, but for my fourth one, another state I've never been to, but it's a great the twelfth man, Kyle Field, Texas A and M. Uh, it's always rocking environment, huge stadium. I think it seats over a hundred thousand. One hundred six, I think it's yeah, seats. just huge, and they're they love their football in Texas. They, cool. There's no doubt about that. Which, to put in perspective, you know, Michigan always just repaints the numbers so that they can add seats because it's built on a swamp and there's just virtually impossible to add more seats. So it's a one-cheek stadium, I say. But 
for 110, 111, whatever they claim they can fit in there now, it is nowhere near, and this is not as the Spartans saying it, I've been to a lot of games there, including Michigan-Ohio State games, it is nowhere near as loud as the Shoe, as Nayland in Tennessee, as Kyle Field, as even Autzen, which is half the size, or um, State College, it's just not. You can say it is, you can call it the Big House, you can call it all these things, blah, blah, blah. It it does not do it. If you're really truly a fan and you just take off your, your allegiance hat and you went to all these places, you wouldn't even have it in your top 10. That's how overrated that one is um, and would be in the pebble stones of the Mount Rushmore that I'm carving out myself. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, getting closer to college football, folks. I mean, I think it's under probably close to 60 days for the first for week zero, um, which is coming up here in a couple months and that's I mean sucks to even think about that that summer they're already almost July but that's that's good news that we have that and a real season to look forward to as well as the NFL um but spot four um we're gonna get back to the to our little list we've been doing here top 100 public golf course according to golf.com um we're gonna do 76 through 100 here um and uh we're going to talk about which ones you played, if any. And then uh, if you haven't played any, pick five that you want to play. And you can go first. All right, I'll go first. Um, you know, this set of 25 is a goose egg for me. Not played one of them. So I've been fortunate enough, I guess, to play maybe six to eight of the top 75. But none on this part. Um, not haven't sniffed a single one of them. But after a close look, there's plenty of good ones to play in there. I'm going to start with a theme close to last week's pod and play some that are close to home and not priced too out of whack at the same time, just by chance. So we're going to start this five-stop road trip with number 96, and that's Stotenbray in Augusta. Not Georgia, Augusta, Michigan. Max rate of 99 bucks. It's a top 100 course for $99 max. It's Link style. It's only been open since 2016, and yet it's been a top 100 course, I think, the last two years, which is very impressive. Um, yes, please, of course, that great and that cheap. Um, I'm all over that. From there, it's off to Firestone and Akron. Um, the south course is ranked number 83, and while I haven't played it, Ryan and I did go to a WGC event there. Just a classic parks-type course. It is not cheap. Um, it's like in the three high 300s but after walking it it's one of those literally it's the style of course that i could play every day all day and never get bored it's just it's that great of a look um to the eye type of course next i'm going to head a little bit west and i'm going to play another newer course for under 100 and that's the fau pfau fau course at indiana university number 85 on the list and I think that one opened in 2020 at a max rate of like 93 bucks. So, I mean, talk about a great deal and another brand new course to break the top 100. That's pretty insane. Um, then I'm going to drive a little bit west and north to play Cog Hill number four um, up in Illinois, ranked number 92 on the list. Dubs Dread, as it is called, has hosted many a pro event. It can actually be played for less than 175 bucks and it has plenty of history. Plus, it's another one of those throwback courses, kind of like Firestone, so it's not your, you know, Bandoned Dunes or your, you know, I don't say Bandoned Dunes is tricked up, but it's not that type of course. It's not a Lynx course that way. It's more of a Parks course. Um, I love those, you know, Blythefield Country Club here, right up the street that we remember that for about 10 years, that hosts the LPGA, same type of thing. 
you can just play it over and over. Maybe sometimes move up to the front tees, maybe move back to the tips and change how the course goes. Um, I could see that with Cog Hill. My last stop here is going to require a flight, but I got to go with Bay Hill. Um, I can't actually remember where it was in the list. Uh, 92-ish maybe, something like that. Um, Arnie's course down in Orlando, it just looks like a blast to play. It's pretty expensive. There's probably a shit ton of alligators, but um, I would love to play that course down in Orlando. Ryan, how about yours? Yeah, those are are all great ones. Um, Surprisingly, I only have one of the same as you. Uh, Kind of went all over the board with mine, but if we were to do it trip style like like you uh like you kind of did I'd start in Atlantic City Country Club which is really just a private club um not not a cheap golf course um in Atlantic City New Jersey you can see the boardwalk from where you're playing but it's it's a beautiful course I've I've seen it all over uh Instagram and stuff from famous golf photographers um near the ocean uh, just it looks just it looks awesome and I'd love to play it and it's ranked pretty high up there I think it was 76 or 7 actually um, and after that I take the trip down down the coast there um, down to South Carolina's cl- club called Caledonia I'm not exactly sure where in Cal or it's in South like Carolina Beach, I think uh, looks like a beautiful track I mean South Carolina golf is great the two courses I've played and I'm seeing pictures of many other ones uh, and they all look really fun and this one looks like it'd be the same. Um, for a third, I'd go down to the one you said last, Bay Hill, down in Orlando. Um, host of the Arnold Palmer Invite. Um, just a classic course. Tigers won there a ton. Bryson won there this year. Just the history of it. It's it's really cool. It's a challenging course as well. Um, just be fun to play a course that they play every single year on tour. After that... I'd make the long trip across the United States to Talking Stick Golf Club in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, kind of cut into the mountains a bit uh, in the desert. Just looks like a great course. I've seen this on on golf pictures as well. Um, I think Bubba Watson plays here a lot um, out there. Just beautiful. I've never played desert golf before, so it'd be kind of fun. And then I'd make the trip up to Oregon, a course literally right next door to Bain and Dunes Pronghorn. Uh, the Nicholas course there, uh, just would I'd use that as an add-on to my uh, Bandon Dunes trip and play all those courses. Just looks absolutely beautiful. Um, so those are my five. You had really really good ones as well. Um, and then with that, we'll move to spot five. And uh, this is based off of uh, a post on Twitter and Instagram the past couple of days has been coming up, and people have been weighing in, and that is. What are the hardest sports to play? And this list right here has 60 different sports ranked by difficulty. I'm not going to take your time and go through all of them, but I'll, I'll give you the 10 hardest in what they say that we can kind of see what we have to say about that and what we would replace. Um, just kind of go back and forth on that. But number one, they have boxing. Number two, ice hockey. Number three, football. Number four, basketball. Number five, wrestling. Number six, martial arts. Number seven, tennis. Number eight, gymnastics. Number nine, baseball slash, soft, slash softball. And number 10, soccer. Uh, I, I don't like this list. I don't think that it, it's very garbage. Accurate. It's, it's pretty shitty. Yeah. I, mean, I know who did it. It was, uh, um, let's see, I have it down. Unbiased, uh, unbiased Sports America, which yeah, sounds a little biased to me. Gonna, it sounds like a couple of we're gonna, fairies. Let, let's let's collaborate sports. on this and do a top 10, starting with number one. Uh, boxing, I mean, it's... No. 
It's not. It's it's hard. You throw, sure, I mean, it's yeah. You throw pump, I mean, it's any it's sport requires Jeopardy, something, but, but I'd say number one needs to be. I mean, hockey definitely is a, a very hard sport, but a sport like like water polo or swimming. I mean, they have water polo ranked twelfth, which is asinine. Yeah, water polo. Your sister's like that. Extremely hard sport to play, especially with what goes on below the surface. Yeah. Yeah, I think. I mean, that would be probably really high up there for me. Hockey should be up there. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think football and basketball are both hard, but I don't know if they would be necessarily that high. Wrestling, yeah. give me a break. Give I mean, a break. Yeah, look down here at like lacrosse, which is. An interesting one. Wrestling, you're running around in a tutu with earmuffs on. I mean, skiing, come on. Skiing, I mean, skiing is really hard. Uh, rugby, another hard. I mean, that's skiing's a, an activity. It's not even a sport. Uh, speed skating, that's another thing that might be uh, interesting. Uh, surfing, maybe throw that in there. Um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, no, my number one, and I'm going to tell you what. First of all, I got no to most of those, at least the top five. I got a couple of the top ten, and I, I kind of picked my top five. Um, and I have not played all 60 sports by any stretch. Um, but number one for me, honestly, hands down, and a lot of people would certainly disagree, is like 51st on the list is golf. Yeah, golf. I mean, I've been so playing hard. since I was 13. Ryan's been hitting the ball since he was like 18 months. I've broken 80 like once or twice. It's the hardest game mentally. It's not really a physical cakewalk either when you really play golf like at the pro level and you're walking. I mean, those guys are think about the playoff last week at the at the Travelers. I mean, those guys played an extra 8 holes and granted they were riding the cart back to the tees and stuff, but they walked those holes from tee to green over and over and over again on top of the 18 that they'd already played. You know, it's not a physical cakewalk. The hand-eye coordination required is way underrated. I mean, if you disagree, go try to play and be good at it. It's one thing to play and hack around, but to try to play and be good at it. 51st, I mean, what are these guys smoking? You know, this is, to me, it's the hardest sport. I could agree to maybe slide it down a little bit, but for me, that's the hardest. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'd say that's definitely top three for me. I'll just give my quick list. I'd say hockey would be I would the hardest for me. Hockey's number two for me, and you could argue that it would be slide that on your and, number and one, And I'd say swimming slash water polo, number two. I mean, both so hard, and you need cardio. I could, mm-hmm. I could never do that. Three, I'll go golf. Four, gymnastics. And then five, um, a sport that I think is it's, it's underrated because it's it's hard. And people don't really think about it as much to be hard because it's it's not. But I think I see it on your list. It's baseball. Yeah, um, I agree. It's a slow game, so 30, people think it's easy. Thirty percent is really really good. It's Hall of Fame. Thirty percent. If you're a thirty percent career hitter through bat three hundred, you're probably a Hall of Famer. That means you're successful thirty percent of the time. That's crazy to me. I had it rated number three for me, and it. I mean, have you ever? Go to a batting cage and put it on fast, and those are coming in at maybe like 70, 75. And you know that it's going to go right down the middle. Try standing in there when you don't know if a guy's going to throw a 95-mile-an-hour rising fastball that's going to give you a little bit of chin music. Is he going to throw you a knee-buckling curveball? I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I definitely have baseball in my top top five, top three at it, number three. I had hockey number two. I mean, I never played it because I can't skate worth a lick, but that sells you something right there. These dudes are big they're going sprint speed they're cutting they're juking their head on a swivel they're a couple of inches above the surface on a little skinny blade and they stop on a dime and they beat the hell out of each other and they got a stick and they 
I mean, pucks frozen in metal or rubber and bashes their teeth in. I mean, it's violent. It's graceful. It's skill-based. It's tough. I mean, I could easily slide that into number one just because of all those things I just said. But, I mean, at least they had that in the top five. I can agree with that. I agree with Ryan, too, gymnastics. I mean, if you ever had to try that in gym class, oh, if there was a, a unit I dreaded more, it was when you walked into gym on a Monday. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. That's my age. And you saw stations of the pommel horse and the rings and all this other, the tumbling mat. Hell, I, could, I can't even do a somersault, let alone do some <laughs> of these. Like, he'd make, make us get on a pommel horse in eighth grade. Like, I don't know. I don't have the upper body strength to do this. I mean... You know, and the, these little teeny tiny girls who are just unbelievable with their spring that they have. And I mean, I, I know some of it's the mats are spring loaded and stuff, but just, I mean, that's other level type of, you know, you, the flexibility you got to have, the agility, all that stuff. I mean, it was number eight, so it's not, they're not too far off. But the final one for me was I would put rugby over football. I mean, it's similar to football, but there's no way football and basketball are harder than rugby. I mean, think about football. With, but they're all big dudes like linebackers, no pads, crazy rules. I don't even understand it. And it was number 13. I mean, talk about a barbaric, difficult sport. I mean, that's totally top five for me. And I mean, we could look, we could probably break down the list over the next few episodes just to look at it and laugh at some of their their ratings. But I mean, skiing, yeah, skiing is difficult as a skill in general, but there's no way it's a top 10 hard sport. No way. Yeah, it's just uh, that list is kind of ridiculous. I think somebody threw it out there for internet fodder yeah, to, to argue about, that. which, you know, hey, they, get, they, they get baited the us. Stirring and, yep, yep. And they did that. Um, but, yeah, those are our five for the week. Uh, if you want to take over for the sprint. Yep, I'll take over the sprint. Ryan, thanks for uh, leading uh, from the co-host seat there on our Around the World segments. Well chosen. Um, sprint number one is the Olympics the appropriate place to protest your country, meaning burn the flag, kneel or turn your back on anthem, etc. You're supposed to be representing your country, not crapping the on the name on the front of the jersey, Absolutely not the back. No. All right, uh, what is too much to pay for a round of golf? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, we I haven't spent it, but I've seen you spend a lot of money on golf. But I, the most at right now I'd spend it would be about one fifty, and that would be for a place like Arcadia Bluffs or something like that. And that's more like close to three hundred. Right. Um, one rule you would change in golf? I'm sure you have it as yours, but it's a fairway divot. Uh, if your ball lands in that uh, and you can't move it, that's the stupidest rule. <laughs> I agree, one hundred percent. All right, and the last one. We usually go movies or music here. We're gonna go foodie. Favorite cut of meat and how do you want it grilled? Well, I just looked at yours and you have the same thing as me, but I have a different different temperature. But New York strip, um, definitely, and then I have it cooked medium. Seasoned, 16 ounces or bigger. All right, so my Olympics, the appropriate place, uh, we talked about this last week when I flew solo. No, never, period. Do not at me. Don't yet butt me. No. You play for the country on the front of your jersey, and if you don't want to drape yourself in the flag and bleed red, white, and blue for that two weeks, don't try to be on the team or move to Ghana or move somewhere else and, and you know where you can disrespect the government. Uh, what is too much to pay for a round of golf? Ryan's right. I usually pay for him right now until he has to take me to either Ireland or Bandon Dunes, whichever comes first when he gets a 
you know, a good paying job and, and he has a wife that I will tell that's his requirement. Um, I would say it depends on the place really and the experience you get. You know, obviously we paid 450 with the four caddy to each to play Harbor Town. Regular weekend golf, you know, like around here, I'm going like 75 bucks with a cart is the sweet spot. Some are a little bit more, some are a little bit less, but that'll get you pretty good golf in West Michigan on the weekend. Bucket list course, I mean, I'd say multiply that by 10, 750 max. If it's like a pebble or, you know, uh, what's another, you know, there's a couple of other courses on that top 100 list that are up there that are probably about that much. Yeah, I'd spring for it just for the experience to say you've done it and and the story, just like we did with Harbortown. Um, one rule I'd change in golf, Ryan nailed it. If you drive it in the fairway and it goes in a divot, you can lift and place the ball within one foot diameter of a divot. It is, it's burned me. I see it burn pros. They know how to handle them better. It's just like, why should you be penalized for hitting a great shot down the middle? A kind of 1A for me would be the whole mud on the ball rule. Whoa, was it Morikawa that that cost at the Memorial? Um he had a great drive down the middle and got mud on his ball because it had just been like a 10-minute downpour. That's kind of a crappy rule, too, I think. I mean, that's going way back to the 1800s, but whatever. I say fairway divot. And last, yep, Ryan and I agree, New York Strip season, medium rare, please and thank you. Typical Sunday meal in the GAM household. All right, Ryan, throw us some final social media reminders. Yeah, just a reminder, follow us on Twitter at the final score 35 uh, Good to be back. Uh, thank you guys. That's it for this week. Uh, we've got, as we always do, plenty of sports goodness in front of us. We've got the Olympics coming up. We've got college football coming up. We finally have the end of the NBA season. We have the end of NHL. we got lots of good stuff to entertain um, you all with over the next several weeks. And then we get into college football, probably wall to wall here anyway. Um, as Ryan said, share your likes, your ideas, your dislikes, etc. via our Twitter. If you got a hot topic... Let us know. I covered one last week, and that was the, the makeup of a winning athlete. Um, we're happy to talk about any of that stuff. Um, I would say, again, I want to say thank you to uh, Team Anders Realtors, our presenting sponsor. Learn more about how Team Anders can help you with your realty needs at teamanders.com. Meantime, they're real and they're spectacular. <laughs> <laughs>